You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beltway Beef Tax Talks. I am very excited because today we have special guest, Paul Niefer. Paul is a principal with Clifton Larson Allen and founder of the agribusiness blog, Farm CPA Today. You may remember Paul from our inaugural Tax Talks podcast. Paul, welcome back. I'm glad to be back after, like I say, I was telling you offline, I've just got back from a 17-day trip, so hopefully I don't say anything very goofy today. You know, I'm still recovering, so... I doubt that. So, Paul, one of the reasons we wanted to visit with you is because recently a four-page document was released outlining potential revenue raiser or revenue provisions that Ways and Means is considering uh, in order to offset the cost of a, a host of proposals that align with President Biden's Build Back Better agenda and the American Families Plan as Congress moves forward to enact legislation under budget reconciliation. Um, before we get into the weeds on some of what's being proposed, which is what I want to talk to you about today, I want to point out for our listeners that Paul is a, a really unique guest for us. His expertise is unparalleled. Um, you know, he's not only a, a practitioner who works with agricultural producers, but Farm CPA today provides the most tremendous analysis on impact. Uh, he looks at legislative proposals and, you know, can provide guidance on real world impact. It, it marries sort of what we do here in DC uh, versus what he does every single day working with agricultural producers and some of his you know, tax counsel. And so, uh, you know, Paul, when we talk about what's um, being proposed right now, I think your insight is really going to be helpful for folks on Capitol Hill in terms of talking about real world impact. Um, and there are a couple different things that I, I want to cover today, but the first one is the capital gains rate. And so, you know, under current law, capital gains rates for investors in the talk top tax bracket are effectively half of the ordinary tax rate on wages. And under the proposal, the capital gains rate would be conformed to the top individual rate for high income taxpayers or those in the top tax bracket. The the proposal uh, that we've got in front of us says that it will not raise significant revenue if not paired with other capital gains changes like realization at death. So effectively, it's just raising the capital gains rate uh, to 39.6%. And I do want to get to the transfer tax conversation. But before we go there, Paul, um, I was hoping maybe you could help sort of simplify how an, an increase in the capital gains rate would impact our cattle producers, because um, raised livestock, when they're sold, are subject to capital gains. And I think there's going to be an immediate impact right there, not even talking about generational transfer or how you know you keep the, the family farm uh, in production, how you keep folks' heads above water right now. I mean, this that increase could have a, a big impact, could it not? You know, exactly. And, and the one thing you need to be aware Danielle, is that it's not just 39.6%. They're also going to tack on that extra 3.8% net investment income tax on all gains, essentially. So you're looking at a 43.4% rate. And, you know, originally it was on a million dollars of taxable income. Does that now mean they want to drop it down to when that top bracket kicks in, which is more like that, uh, you know, $600,000 range? So like you said, for those cattle producers out there that sell raised breeding stock, you know, they're selling their cows, the, the heifers that they converted to cows or the bulls and so on. And, and they have a fairly large gain that effectively is a double, it's more than a double increase in tax because right now the maximum rate would be 20%. Now it's going to be 43.4%. So uh, that's definitely going to hurt a lot of our 
uh, you know, beef producers out there that otherwise would have been, you know, again, we understand paying taxes. We understand paying, you know, our fair share, so to speak. But uh, uh, by the time you include uh, a state income tax, such as if you're in California, you're well over 50%. That, that's way too much tax on, on raised breeding stock. Yeah. And uh, it's my understanding that, you know, the income generated from raised livestock sales, you know, that often, especially when times are tight, as they have been for the last several years, I mean, that's really used to offset operating costs. I, I mean, it's it's treated like a, a gain for tax purposes, but it, it really doesn't amount to meaningful income. Is that what you see with a lot of the producers you work directly with? Yeah. And, and, and again, I think for some of our producers, remember, we're talking about a net net overall. If they're taxable, if, if they take in all those gains and use it to uh, you know pay for the feed, pay for the labor, pay for all the other costs, then then this effect probably won't be too bad. But then there are certain producers, especially if they have to start liquidating a herd, you know, as you liquidate that herd and suddenly 50% or more is going to Uncle Sam in the local state, um, you know, it's hard to recover from that. You know, you're, you're liquidating because you have a drought going on and then you get penalized with a 50% tax. We really don't want to see that happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, for folks listening who aren't um, necessarily intimately familiar with uh, cattle production, you know, our producers operate on razor thin margins every year, razor yeah. thin. And so uh, that potential tax increase in and of itself could be devastating. Um, but, you know, one of the, the hot topics that we've been banging the drum on um, for quite some time is stepped up basis. And so uh, the proposal right here says uh, there would be a requirement for realization at death for transfers of property with untaxed gains in excess of five million per person, ten million per couple. There is a, a residential exemption in addition to that, and then you know it notes that conversations are continuing about the design of a, a family farm exception, which would provide an additional exemption for the first twenty-five million in family farm property per couple, and that's on top of the ten million per couple. Um, you know, I think on paper thirty-five million. That sounds like a lot, right? Um, but the devil's absolutely in the details. Paul, can you talk to us about some of the like the hurdles, the pitfalls, what folks on Capitol Hill really should be keeping in mind when they're considering? Well, and, and, and we know that likely they might be structuring that family exemption under what we call Section 2032 Cap A, which is very restrictive. I mean, it requires that, uh, that, that the family continues to farm it. They can't cash rent the ground. Uh, if they stop farming within 10 years, they have to go back and pay a recapture tax, essentially. Um, you know, the definition of a family is very restrictive. You know, a lot of ranch families, you know, the son and daughter might not be interested in doing the farming operate or the ranching operation, but a cousin or a niece or a nephew are going to come in. Well, under 2032A, nieces and nephews and so on are not families. So, you know, this, this, um, the idea that, yeah, it's going to tout family farms are not going to be affected by it. Well, what's the definition of a family farm? And if this exemption applies, does that mean you have to meet all these restrictions? Is it for 10 years? Is it for 20 years? Is it for 30 years? And then if you blow it just because you do one little piece of wrong paperwork, you suddenly have to go back and pay tax plus interest you know, for a five or 10 or 15 year period. 
uh, that definitely could devastate farm families. Uh, and again, I was just uh, talking offline, you know, Secretary Vilsack came out with the op-ed piece in, in the Wall Street Journal today talking about, you know, he got some land and it's now worth $2 million and he's more than willing to pay the tax. Well, the idea of paying taxes when you actually sell the property. So if you sell the property, yes, we're going to pay the tax, not having a transfer tax just because you happen to pass away. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah that just drives me crazy a little bit. That's a really good point. I, you know, I think capital gains is not ever intended to be a, a tax at death on assets. I mean, there's we have an estate tax um, and imposing a, a capital gains tax on estate transfers when there's no disposition of assets. I mean, it, you're effectively creating double taxation here. Um, yeah. It has the potential to hit a lot of producers really hard, um, you know, sort of circling back again to the complexities that you referenced, which I think there are many um, land leasing arrangements or, you know, sort of multiple owner scenarios with minority interest uh, and material participation rules. I, I mean, how hard would it be to craft something that could actually get, you know, 98% of family farms there? You know, they have a tough road to hoe, so to speak. I guess I'm using all these cliches, but uh, uh, that that would, you know, we could come up with something. The problem is you're going to have leakage. You know, anything you come up with, there's going to be a, a ranch family here and a ranch family here that is not going to meet the definition of whatever we come up with. Uh, um, you know, but I, I will admit, and I hate to say it, but I will admit, compared to the original proposal, this is a much better proposal for our, our ranchers out there. Uh, this would effectively, assuming the details are what we hope it would be, um, this, this is much better than what they originally were proposing, which was a flat out transfer tax no matter what. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think from an ideological perspective, um, even though this is a marked improvement, we still have some pretty significant concerns. Our producers have been hit really hard the last couple of years. Um, you know, you look at the amount of farmland that's expected to change hands, um, you know, in the next decade or two. Um, how do we support a, a vibrant next generation of agricultural production? How do we keep um, farms in the family? How do we support new family farms? How do we keep land in production here in the United States? And um, to me, you know, any new tax burden uh, or anything that makes life more difficult uh, and more complex and harder to survive, you know, over a long period of time, it seems to be counterintuitive to the sort of overall family's agenda and one in which we're supporting both producers and lowering you know, our already safe, abundant and affordable food supply um, or the cost of yep. our yep. affordable food supply and, you know, land conservation on top of that. But I, I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing I would say, Danielle, is that um, seeing this, if this is, let's say this is the base now that we're dealing with this, uh, I think it does provide some relief to our uh, ranchers and farmers out there that were eagerly getting ready to gift all their property because they were worried about the step up in basis. So uh, for a lot of those ranchers and, and families, they're going to fall well under this, this dollar amount. So, um, you know, I still remember back in 2012 and we're still, still dealing with it on a lot of our farm families, you know, certain assets were gifted away and five years later, seven years later, 10 years later, they're going, uh oh, we made a mistake. So I, I hate having this 
rush to, we got to give away everything. And then you find out, well, maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. So yeah. uh, I, now we certainly know in the trust area, they are wanting to make some changes there. Um, that would eliminate the benefit of some of the trusts that we do. I just did a blog post on, on spousal lifetime access trusts or SLATS trusts. Those might be curtailed. But again, like anything else, whatever Congress comes up with, we're going to come up with some way of, of overcoming it to some degree. And, uh, and uh, as we um, sort of commonly joke, you know, for us professionals in this industry, it's Lifetime Employment Act. You know, every time they make these changes, um, you know, we, we come up with some ways of, of fixing it. But um, what, what's the problem right now, really, I think is just the whipsaw. You know, we had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that went one way. Now the Democrats want to go the other way. And if we get a change in administration, it's going to whipsaw back the other way. And that's just not a way to run the country. Yeah. So, I mean, with the estate tax reforms proposed, um, you know, there is effectively a component of double taxation between, you know, the, the realization at death and the existing estate tax. Um, but then it, it does talk about eliminating the ability to avoid uh, the estate tax by disallowing the use of certain trust planning techniques. And uh, there's also a reference to, you know, a legislative provision that would effectively compel the Department of Treasury uh, to update regulations to prevent the abuse of non-economic valuation discounts. Uh, to me, Paul, this reads like they might be looking at regulations on uh, minority interest. And that was something that we saw regulations on, you know, sort of at the tail end of the Obama administration. It's a priority for our members, certainly Um, for our listeners who might not be familiar because it's a pretty wonky, complex tax issue. (laughs) Can you just give a high level explanation of what that is and why it's important for cattle producers? Yeah. So when when you have a ranch operation, let's say you stick it into a family limited partnership or an LLC, um, you know, you no longer own 100 percent of a ranch. You actually own some units inside of an LLC. So when you own units inside of an LLC, especially if you don't own 100 percent of that LLC, you start gifting those units away to the next generation, we're able to take certain discounts. One discount is it's very hard to market an LLC. You know, you can easily sell a ranch. You know, you you call up the, the auctioneer and they go out and sell the ranch for you. Well, I shouldn't say easy, but it's a lot easier. Whereas if you own, you know, five units out of a thousand units in an LLC, nobody in the outside world is going to want to buy those units. So that allows us to take what we call a minority discount, which is typically in that 10 to 15% range. And then we also have a lack of marketability, which is probably more in that 20 to 25% range. So yes, they would like to curtail the minority interest when you're dealing with related parties such as ranchers, uh, but the um, the market lack of marketability discounts probably still there. Uh, and there might be some other discounts. And again, if that happens, does that mean the valuation people start beefing up the discounts for lack of marketability? You just don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, all of these different proposals sort of stand alone. There might be a way to avoid them or work your way around if you can get creative. But, you know, when you start to tack everything on on top of each other, whether it's, you know, lack of marketability or, you know, the minority discount or the 199A reforms, um, you know, an increase of capital gains rate. I mean, again, operating on razor thin margins, um, we know estate planning, um, it, you know, even just, I think your annual sort of tax council and preparation, I mean, 
these all are investments that our producers deem worthwhile, obviously, but um, they're they're not cheap and they're not easy. Um, yeah. And anything well, and it's that makes a it and it's that compounding effect. I mean, it's just uh, like I say, you know, if if the transfer tax goes through, uh, essentially, we're the only country in the world that I'm aware of that has both an estate tax and a transfer tax. Uh, you know, on top of it. So, uh, uh, you know, we, we just uh, seem to be, you know, we used to think European, Europe was the high tax uh, part of the world. Well, now we're becoming the really high tax part of the world. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, there's a fundamental difference between people who have cash in the bank versus, you know, our agricultural producers who are asset rich, but uh, most certainly cash poor. Um, yeah, and- yeah. In yeah, most scenarios. Exactly. Yep. Well, Paul, this has been incredibly insightful and I really, really appreciate your time. Is there anything else, you know, you'd like to communicate to folks on the Hill today or um, any other words of wisdom you can have or offer to us? Well, I, I think, you know, just the idea of, like you say, uh, when you have an asset or an asset intensive business that just does not generate very high returns, that's when you have a risk of any tax creating an additional burden. I mean, if you have high margin business, such as an Apple or a Google, they can afford to pay the tax. But, you know, cattle ranchers, um, you know, high revenue, but very low margin, a high asset base, but very low basis possibly, um, you know, piling on that tax is just going to create less and less food options because they're just going to sell out. And, you know, and that land's going to go out of being productive range land or productive farmland. It's going to go to something else. Well, thanks, Paul. We really appreciate you being, being here today. Uh, and again, for anybody listening who wants to learn more about Paul's work or is looking for some, uh, you know, additional insight, I would encourage you to check out Farm CPA Today, the agribusiness blog. It is a tremendous, tremendous resource. Thank you. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, including SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.